Straight Talk Live. Off. Should we get started? Let's go. Let's let's crack on. It's okay. a beautiful day in London. It's also a beautiful day here in San Diego. They buy things to impress people that they don't even like. You do have to change the culture. The culture in the organization is the most important. It's as if reality is splintering into multiple shards. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. I'm one of the co-hosts, Rick Snyder, and this is a fantastic not-for-profit where we get to explore the areas of human, digital, social, and the confluence of all three in today's world. And the questions that, frankly, we felt like we weren't prepared for uh, about a year and a half ago when the whole COVID situation hit, and that was the inspiration of this podcast, was how do we start to create a platform to have the most important questions answered by experts like the one today that we'll be introducing in a second, and really these incredible areas around how do we support the next generation of thought leaders, uh, of actual leaders, people who are doing the work in the trenches. Um, that's really what this show is about. So I am the um, founder of Invisible Edge. I'm the author of Decisive Intuition, and I'm also joined by uh, my amazing co-host and friend, Af Maholtra. Af, take it away. Thank you, Rick. Uh, you're amazing too. Aw. <laughs> So it's all about communities, you know, so um, and we have one here. So a pleasure to have you all on the show today. Uh, yet again, we have a fantastic guest uh, and a guest who's going to both inspire us and um, get us to think differently about um, the concept of communities and, of course, skills, which has come up again and again in the STL shows we've been running in the past. So I'm, of course, uh, a co-creator of this fantastic uh, media platform and not-for-profit I'm also the co-founder of Growth Enabler and uh, have shifted my life in the last year into philanthropy in a big way. So more on that as we go through this, um, this process and journey. But I'm going to throw the cricket ball. In fact, I'm going to kick the football over to you because the Euros are on, the soccer, the Euros are on in, in the UK. Which football are we talking about? Yeah, no, no, totally soccer, <laughs> soccer with, the, with, the, with the feet. And, uh, and uh, over to you. Let's kick start and let's crack up. Okay. Okay. So today we're going to be doing a deep dive into community. How do you actually uh, not just envision, uh, create, manifest, but actually support a community, uh, especially in terms of digital skills, knowledge, uh, really upskilling the next generations. When we see this huge migration from rural to urban, urban to rural, working remotely, you know, what's that looking like in today's world? And how do you actually really create a community that's based on the, the same principles, um, core values that really inspire beyond borders. So we're, we have the pleasure of bringing on Russ Shaw, who's done exactly that around the world. He's the founder of London Tech Advocates and Global Tech Advocates. Russ Shaw, welcome to Straight Talk Live. Thanks, Rick. Great to be here. Hi, Af. Very nice to see you and um, looking forward to the next hour. Me too. So let's, let's jump right in. Uh, Russ, why don't you give us a little bit of your background so people know where you're coming from before we dive into the topics today. Sure, thank you. Well, quick bit about me is I, I'm living in London. I'm coming to you from London. I've been here for 30 years, although the accent is from where you are, Rick. Uh, I was born in the US. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, 
I went to Harvard Business School and uh, fell in love with a Londoner who brought me here many years ago. So it was love that brought me to, to the UK. And I've worked in financial services. I've worked in telecoms and technology. Um, I was a CEO of a later stage startup. I was a global innovation director for a big telco. Um, my last full-time corporate gig was at Skype until we were acquired by, by Microsoft. So I've had some good lucrative exits in my career, which enabled me to kind of really find purpose and philanthropy in life, which is what I've been doing for the past eight years. So I'm the founder of Tech London Advocates and Global Tech Advocates. And these are communities of tech leaders, investors, experts, founders, anybody involved with tech who wants to be part of the community is welcome to do so. And we're trying to do two things. One, we really wanna get behind the startups and scale-ups in our tech hubs and ecosystems wherever we are in the world to, to make sure they're getting the support that they need. And two, we wanna put the spotlight on the issues and challenges that we're facing in our ecosystems, whether it's around infrastructure, funding, uh, diversity in, in, in the talent pools, and what we're gonna talk about today, the absolute criticality of digital skills. Mm. Yeah, in fact, let's start there. <clears throat> um... I'm just appreciating your background and all the different facets that you bring to the table and that you get to be in this place, like, like you said, where now you get to be in that mentoring phase and really giving back. And I just really get that about you from our previous conversations and today. And so tell me more about that is what, what do you, what have you been seeing as a trend? I mean, a lot of the concerns have been that um, the workforce is changing, that the jobs of today are not necessarily the jobs of tomorrow, especially in all these different disruptive technologies that are happening around the world. How do we keep up? How do we stay ahead of that? And how are, what are you seeing as far as your contribution to that specifically? Sure. Well, I think maybe to reassure everybody, this is nothing new. Um, the jobs of, of, of today are different from 10 years ago, from 20 years ago. And we've always had that natural evolution of, of how jobs and, and, and the skills required to do those jobs evolve over time. But I think what is becoming apparent and has become apparent is that, you know, economies around the world are being driven hugely by digital and the, the successful companies, whether they're the big tech giants or the emerging tech unicorns are built on digital platforms. And, and I think the challenge that we're seeing is that, you know, we don't have a workforce in many places around the world that's fully equipped to work in the digital and tech economy. And I also stop and say, look, that's not just about having enough high-end coders or data scientists or cyber gurus. Um, it's around about people having transferable skills that could come into the sector. And, you know, we've just gone through and are going through a very painful period with this pandemic where more traditional industries have been absolutely battered. The retail sector has been battered. The hospitality sector has been battered. The travel sector has been battered. But yet, you know, we've seen in the UK since lockdown began a 40% increase in tech vacancies. So to me, there's this enormous challenge of how do you, you know, and I have a bit of economics training, how do you better match demand and supply? I can see a huge amount of demand over here I see some supply over here, but not enough of it that's gonna fill those jobs of the future. And I do think we have a window of maybe three, five, 10 years at most, where we can really focus on the workforce of populations around the world and say, look, you will have a much better 
standard of living um, if you have some degree of digital skills where you can work in a variety of different jobs in the digital and technology sector. And one of the basic ones I talk about, which people seem to get is I say, look, you know, we're desperate for project managers in the tech community, whether you're in a tech startup or a big tech company, there are loads of project managers in more traditional industries that with some basic reskilling and retooling can make the jump and leap into the digital and technology economy. So those are some of the things that we're really focused on when we're speaking to government, when we're speaking to media, and maybe one last point, Rick, is part of my message is, I don't expect governments to solve this problem on their own. I think the private sector has a huge responsibility to step up, to help fund this transition, to fund this reskilling of, of the workforce, because ultimately the private sector will benefit from that. Mm-hmm. Russ, let's, let's go back for a second to, um, you touched on a very important point and I want to sort of unpack demographics for a moment. So. If you look at countries around the world, we have a a variance of young people, middle-aged people and slightly older people. In the UK, for example, we have less young people. We have people who are in the the, the middle-age silver surfer category. And generally, there's a misconception when you think about skills, where people think, well, actually, is it about the youth, the youth doing code, the youth learning digital skills, technology uh, basis certifications and so on and so forth and often there's a there's a, a generalization or a, or a bias that we're talking about a certain group of people and if in fact if you're past your sell-by date someone may think that in a corporate job back to project managers you know a project manager running um you know it projects for some sort of a telecoms or technology company is probably thinking well actually i'm in my i don't know um, mid fifties or something along those lines. I'm not sure if I can learn anything new. All I know is Prince two or agile project management or whatever it may be. Uh, tell us a little bit about when you, when you talk about transferable skills, um, if you could just break down how you see the, uh, the, the different demographic segments, uh, in the, in, in this construct. Yes. Well, well, maybe before I get to the demographics, I mean, when we talk about transferable skills, maybe the best way I, I try and think about it is there's two buckets, if you will. There are the, the harder skills and there's the softer skills. And yeah. for me, the harder skills are the, yes, you're a project manager, you've done agile, or you're a coder, or, you know, if you're great in design and you're into user interface, you know, those are the, the hard skills that we talk about. And then there are the softer skills for me, which I think, and particularly for people <laughs> my age and older, are, are, are important, which are, you know, you've got people in their 50s and 60s who have incredible experiences, lots of wisdom. I joke with people from my career, I have so many battle scars on my back from things that, you know, didn't work that you want to impart on others. You know, how you manage people, how you lead people. Um, how you inspire people and, and, and also adapt to a changing landscape is something that people, I think of all ages can do, but I think some of those older demographics may have a leg up because they've been there and have all kinds of things thrown at them through the course of their career. Um, you know, there are younger folks out there coming out of uh, colleges, universities, um, that we want to come straight in and work in a, in, a, in a tech startup rather than going into banking or consulting or, or whatever. And there's a great future for them too. But as they come into the world of work, they're bringing a lot of enthusiasm, passion, and some you know, really good potential um, hardcore skills 
Mm. But do they have the experience of managing large teams of people right from the get-go? No, they don't. Um, that, that takes time, I think, to grow and develop. So when you look across the demographics, I do think that there is a role for anybody, whatever, they, whatever age they are, to have a role or position in this economy. And it's a matter of working through your network, working through your community, doing kind of a self-assessment of where you are with your skills. But also I do think where, you know, where government can play a role. And a couple of years ago, I gave evidence to a House of Lords Select Committee. And one of the things that we talked about was lifelong learning and how critical that is that for the people coming into the workforce today and those are in it, you can't just think, oh, I've got my university degree and I'm, I'm sorted for the rest of my life. We've got to get a mindset of lifelong learning into everybody. And, and we have to come up with ways in which we can enable that to happen. So one of the things that was being discussed, and I don't know where this is, is how do we, you know, say I'm 45 and I can see that my skill set is not necessarily the right skill set to keep going. Can I take a six month or one year paid sabbatical, maybe funded by the government, and go and get reskilled, go on a coding program, go on a project management uh, uh, training course, whatever that might be, so that you, when you go back into the world of work, you know, you've not missed out economically and you know, you're skilled up for another 10 years of work. That's how we collectively, I think, have to think about skill sets across demographics. Mm -hmm. Do you believe uh, talking about uh, the sabbatical, uh, what what are you you know this is organic right we go in different directions here what is your view on uh something that has come up numerous times on the show uh universal basic income are, are you referring to that or a derivative of that when you say i take a year out and i get some sort of a a government grant of support yeah i am putting me putting two bits to this i am a, a general supporter of ubi um i think there's going to be a role for that in in the future um you know because we one of the things, and maybe we'll come and talk about this, but it also relates to where we are with skills, is that digital divide is enormous and it's getting bigger. And we've got to figure out how we close that digital divide, how we build a, a more thriving middle class. And I think some type of UBI mechanism, and I know that there have been some tests and trials in different parts of the world, is something that we need to look much closer at going forward. That said, I think what I was talking about was more of a, you know, can you put a pause on your career so that you can get reskilled? Maybe you get a company to fund it, but if you can't, right. you can go out and say, look, I need to step out of the workforce for a year, but I've got a family, I've got a mortgage payment, I need to keep that going. How can I be funded to do that? Not necessarily have to pay it back, but come back into the workforce and be productive for another 10 or 15 years because we'll need that skill set to enhance the GVA of, of, of the economy. So that's kind of how I look at it on that particular point. But UBI, I think, is something that we really need to explore as well. Good. So, Good. Uh, Russ, one angle I want to look at with you is the leadership angle. And you've done something pretty remarkable with Global Tech Advocates where it's almost fully volunteer-based. It is fully volunteer-based. Fully, fully volunteer-based around the world. Around the world. How do you do that? And, and my, <laughs> question, my question is really, I mean, it takes something to have the kind of culture that people are willing to go the extra mile for, that are willing to invest in themselves for. 
Uh, and then also, if you think about across borders and then, you know, internationally, that's a whole other, how do we hold some kind of culture that everyone is that bought into on that level? I think you have something to teach the leaders out there that are listening to this show, whether they're in a singular organization, multinational, whatever that might be, wherever they sit on the org chart, uh, profit or nonprofit, how do you do that? Um, well, it's something that I didn't learn immediately. Um, you know, it's taken eight years, I think, to kind of get it to this point. But I think first and foremost, you know, and I'm in a fortunate position, I've been able to do all of this pro bono as my give back to tech. So part of that, and I'm not saying it's absolutely required, but part of this is that people can see the leader of these communities is doing this in a voluntary capacity. So mm. hopefully for them, it's, it's a way to role model how they want to do this. But I also understand that people have a day job and everybody in the community does something full-time or part-time and they're doing this in their extra time. But what this is doing, and I think one of the things I've learned about working with volunteers is one, you have to be patient. Two, you know, you have to treat them with a respect and dignity that really reflects back that they are giving their extra time to do this. And I'm mm -hmm. mindful and grateful of everybody mm -hmm. in the community who, who've done this um, over the years. But I think it's also learning how to harness the passion and enthusiasm that somebody can bring to the table as a volunteer, that they know that they're doing something that has a greater good or a greater benefit. So you know, in, in the broadest sense, you're supporting your, your, your tech ecosystem, you know, you might be mentoring a startup, um, you might be supporting an event, um, you're promoting something, that's all really well and good. And then maybe you go an extra step, we have working groups across the uh, advocates community. So you can lead a women in tech group or an education group or a, a fintech group. And I think that's where I see a lot of volunteers really shine in terms of putting something out there, supporting something in the ecosystem, and then seeing what they can get back, not in terms of any kind of financial or commercial bid, although that might happen through connections, but kind of the people coming back saying, oh, that event was great, I met so-and-so, we're now going off to do this. Um, you introduced me to this investor at this event, and now they're, they're funding part of my startup, or I found a job at this particular scale up, you know, those types of things, when people in a voluntary position, get that playback, and I get that playback, I think when I spoke to you previously, I get that on a daily basis, yeah. people just saying it made a difference in my life. And that is something that I then have to take and then play back to everybody and say, this is what's going on at a grassroots level. Um, you know, see these stories, meet these people. This is what they're doing. This is what they're building. This education resource hub was built by a series of volunteers. This book that the Black women in tech community is putting together, they're launching something called the, uh, the, uh, the Voices in the Shadow featuring 51 mm -hmm. Black tech women. Fantastic. So it's also a chance for people to really show and bring their passions and enthusiasm to life in a way that maybe they can't do in their day job. Mm. Mm. With, uh, I'm, I've, I've been part of the community, of course. You um, have, absolutely, it, right from the early uh, days. Exactly. I mean, it's been six or seven years or maybe more, in fact. Um, and 
the couple of really intriguing things, and, and we'll try and bring this into leadership for a moment, and then we'll, we'll migrate the conversation and join the two up together because communities and skills do have a synergy. But what I, what I found really interesting really was um, how mindset, you talked about mindset earlier on, and hearts and minds uh, together need to, be, um, need to be joined up for something remarkable and extraordinary to happen. And of course, it's not a, an instant process. It takes time and it's taken you eight years to rally, to campaign, to talk, to communicate, to present. And uh, whilst you're doing it on a, on a pro bono basis, it takes hard work. It takes yeah. commitment. And of course, it takes a deeper sense of purpose on your part and the part of all of those champions that you end up creating. So, um, and there's, it's symbiotic right? Uh, you, you almost have to feed off one another because it's, it's, it's not linear. You don't, you know, have like incredible days every day. The times when, you know, there are dips and the economy's crashing, COVID happens and so on and so forth. You have to sort of motivate one another. Yes, what I find yes. fascinating about, about, about what you've created really is, um, it's funny really, you know, if you think about leadership in, in corporations, in the private sector, in fact, leadership in government, a lot of what has been done and uh, learned in the Tech London Advocates, Global Tech Advocates sort of community. I re recall you talking to me about network effects eight yes, years yes. ago, uh, which which I guess is the basis of a lot of this stuff. Uh, but, you know, if you are able to tap into with dignity and respect into people's um, drivers, uh, ethical values, moral drivers, their ideals, you're able to bring out the best in them with or without money. It's funny mm -hmm. how when you bring money into the mix, there's a lot of noise and confusion. Sure. So my question to you, which I wanted to ask later, but I'll ask now, given what you've picked up in the last eight years, and given that you've done leadership roles in other companies before, uh, if you knew all of this stuff 15 years ago, how would you have done what you did differently? Um, it's a really good question. I mean, the model that I've created here is actually a culmination of my collective work experience. So I've pulled these things with me along the way. So for example, um, network effects. I worked at Skype for three years. You know, it is a brand that was built on network effects and I really learned and understood the importance of that element. Um, you know, the whole notion of advocates supporting each other um, you know, I, I say to every advocate, there's just three things that you need to do. One, to use us as a resource when you're speaking, blogging, tweeting about tech, let's speak with a consistent voice where we can. That's the marketeer in me from what I've done over the years as a marketeer. The, the open, inclusive network effects introduce a new advocate to the group when you come in. And then third is adopt the ethos. That third component came when I, I learned a lot when I was CEO of a later stage startup. My investors were based on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley. And I got to see firsthand how the Silicon Valley ecosystem worked. And I always say to people, Sequoia Capital, probably the most successful VC in the world, will usually give most people 30 minutes. And at the end of that 30 minutes, they'll usually say, no thanks. But they'll also say, let me introduce you. Let me connect you let me open this door for you and then see if you can keep going. And I wanted to bring that into Tech London Advocates when we launched it back in 2013, because I felt the London ecosystem was starting to get some good traction and momentum, but too many doors were closed. 
So I look back on my career and kind of say, I pulled this from here, this from there. And, and just the, you know, even when I was a young person going to high school, I did a lot of community and involvement and charity work. And this notion of treating people with dignity and respect kind of was drilled into me, if you will, from a, from a very young age. So I also felt it was very important to this day, you know, every advocate who comes into the Tech London Advocates Group gets a personal email from me. There are some days that are a nightmare for me when I've got 20, 20 uh, uh, introductions to follow up on and, and send a personal email to each one of those individuals. And a couple of people have said, oh, you know, your, your PA must be very busy with those. I said, no, that's me because I want to connect with you. I want that personal connection so that you know, and I do, people say, oh, put me on your mailing list. Like, no, this is not a mailing list. This mm -hmm. is the community of tech leaders. And so I want to have a bit of that personal rapport. In the early days, I did meet with every new advocate who came into the group, and then it just expanded so quickly. But that's where the working groups came in so that they could carry that on and touch and reach more people if I couldn't be part of that. So I look at the facets of my career and say, the things that I learned, you will find in this community. And the mistakes that I've made in my career, hopefully I've corrected for them in some of the things that I'm doing with this, with this network. So it's, 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 and sometimes I still replicate the things that I never got right. One of my personal challenges, I, some, I find it very hard to say no to people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people will come to me and say, I want to do this, I want to do that. And I say, yeah, great, fantastic. Um, so, but that also led to an element of this community, which is it's all grown organically. Mm -hmm. Every working group that we've set up, every GTA group around the world that we have, Af, look what you've done. You set up the TLA India group, and then you evolved that to the Tech India Advocates group through your own initiative and the leaders that you've worked with. So everybody that has come to set up something in Global Tech Advocates has come to me to do it. I've never said to anybody, you need to do this, you need to do that, because that comes back to the volunteer model. How do we bring that volunteer spirit and this how do we build this organically together to make sure that we're building something sustainable for the longer term? Because this is a bare bones model of how you set up a community. I get corporate sponsorship. I fund a bit of this myself, but my budget's not very large, but yet we touch and impact a lot of people built on the collective will of people's generosity. Mm -hmm. Fantastic, it's great. Um, Rick, I, I'm going to keep going on, but you, 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 I'm sure you've got a bunch of questions and I, I'm going to, I do, I do. Um, yeah, I think one of them is basically how does this actually work? <laughs> and <laughs> what I, what I, what I mean by that, sometimes the most basic questions are the best actually, but yeah. what, what I mean by that is for you example, know my secret sauce, right? <laughs> that, that, and, um, like when you're trying to upskill a workforce and you're mm -hmm. a not-for-profit, um, you're, you're relying on corporate sponsorship, how does that work? Like, are you partnering with a lot of community colleges, a lot of organizations that are willing to donate their time and space? Are you finding members within your community that are doing that? Um, some of it, I guess, cor corporate sponsorship can help, but there's got to be a lot more resourcing that goes on. So I'm just curious, how do you upskill an international workforce? Um, what are some of the ways that your organization does that? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of the above of what you've asked is, is what we try and do. And, and maybe I can hone in on one of the working groups that we have as an education uh, working group. We have represented in our advocates community, many outstanding skills and education related organizations. 
Boundaries for Schools, Teen Tech, Good Things Foundation, um, Future.now. You know, I can just go on and on about who's in the community and how we promote what each other's doing. And that's also led me to say to government, look, we need your help. Yes, funding is good, but you don't have to. We should get a call in the private sector. But if you're going to fund something, don't recreate the wheel, please, because you know what? There are so many wonderful grassroots organizations out there that really know how to do this. They know how to work with organizations to skill the workforce. You know, they know how to bring people into their training academies. Um, what they need is more support, more promotion. Yes, they might need some funding as well. So a key part of this for me has been, don't go off and do something in isolation, showcase the breadth and scope of everything that's happening. So building on that, last summer, we launched our education resource hub, which focuses on three components. It focuses on digital skills, it focuses on apprenticeships, and it focuses on ed tech. And ed tech has really taken off since the, 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 the pandemic has happened. But that website, and you can go onto it, it's tlaeducation.org.uk, you know, at the moment supports at least 100 initiatives and grassroots organizations in the UK. Um, Further Education News, which is a very prominent publication here, called it the most comprehensive online portal for digital skills in the UK. The platform, everything was built by volunteers and it cost us a few thousand pounds, the hosting fees, et cetera, but it was built on people's generosity. And I've gone back to government to say, you know, this is something we talked about the government doing a few years ago. The private sector stepped up and did this. And so now we've been sharing that platform with other um, communities in our global network. Or if I see something going on in Tech Bay Area advocates or Tech Singapore advocates or in Tech Nordic advocates, how do we bring that in? And then how do we share some of the stuff that we're doing, you know, internationally? You know, another example is with um, how do we get more women into the technology sector and make sure that women have the right skills. And our two largest groups are our women in tech group and our black women in tech group. And they've done phenomenal work over the years. They've built their own websites. They have monthly meetups. And we've started to export that from the UK. Now our Tech Nordic Advocates group has a massive women in tech mentoring program underway, working with women in the tech sector, making sure that they have the skills and the confidence to work in tech. And we're starting to share that through our GTA network. So the beauty in this model, Rick, is that we hear about things at a grassroots level. So it's right. not a massive big tech company spending millions and you know governments get seduced by that because there's a lot of money. We have our radar poised on what's happening in this community here, what's happening in this community there. And we're saying, how do we take the best of what we're seeing and make sure we're sharing best practices globally? Because what I'm seeing, a lot of the work that's going on in skills training and skills development doesn't cost a lot of money. Many of the initiatives out there are free. Um, and, and that certainly appeals to a lot of people who have been left behind or are struggling and need just that little bit of extra support to get them going. Mm. One of the most important things about this also, I guess, is um, no matter what age group you are and you're, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to learn new skills, you're trying to refine, upgrade, whatever it may be, but yeah. actually before you get to skills, I think skills is way easier than mindset, um, mm. way easier. 
right? Because you can learn a skill, you can do a certification. Whether you're able to execute that skill in the right way at the right time to get the right results is, again, another discussion. Tell us a little bit more about, um, and I'm, I'm sure this is part of the agenda, when you think through communities and you think through a use case, I'll give you a great use case perhaps. Um, let's imagine I am a young person, I finished um, my college degree, whatever it may be, and say business, and I'm thinking, well, actually, I've got to go apply for a job, and I can't seem to get a job uh, because there are not many jobs around. And I, my specialism wasn't technology, so I can't go code. Uh, it was, I don't know, economics or something. And I'm trying to work out how I can get a decent job. I have aspirations, I have dreams, and so on and so forth. And I can't seem to get into any of the companies that I was um, looking to go work for. But I don't want to undersell myself. So I now need to expose myself and open my mind to other things that perhaps previously I wasn't aware of. And one very powerful aspect of communities, uh, and it's, this has been going on for centuries, thousands of years, in fact. So the concept of a tribe or a community is not new, but how one mobilizes a group of people to then create change. We've seen that throughout the ages from Mahatma Gandhi to Martin Luther King and to the BLM movement. Uh, that's where you have the secret source. And it's often, it's, it's not about logic and um, a rationale. It's always about emotions, right? Yes. And so what you're talking about is that localization and personalization, which creates a connect, connection between the community hub and that local person, me looking for a job. What I think is powerful, and, and tell me what you think about what communities can do to the skills deficit, um, is one, you can upgrade your skills because you have awareness of what courses you can do and, and yep. so on and so forth. But the other is, uh, you know, I don't want to just call it mentorship and coaching because it's, it's a little bit unfair. It's the dialogue. It's the discussion. It's the talking. It's the debating that then changes your mind. It teaches you to think differently. Yes. Two, it teaches you to learn differently. And yes. three, it teaches you to do differently. Yes. And so I think what you're doing and what we are doing, and you're teaching us and educating us on the importance of communities in, in the world that both Rick and I are hoping that we can influence, because that's why we set this up during the pandemic. We felt that there's a better world out there one day, uh, 30, 40 years down the line, and we want to find those leaders who will be part of that world, at least try and discover them and identify them. Tell us, tell us about the, in your mind, what is the real link between communities and yes. skills? Because a lot of people may not make that connection. What is your view on this? I think they're absolutely interlinked and you're absolutely right to kind of lay out this, this portrait of how that works. But I think you need to think about where does that happen in a person's lifetime? So let's start at the, the earlier age set today. I think, you know, I look at a lot of organizations that are working with schools at the moment. I go back and think about my high school days, for example, I had some amazing high school teachers who just, you know, knew what buttons to push that really inspired and motivated me to do certain things, et cetera. And, and I think today, a lot of the organizations that I've been involved with for, for school kids um, is about getting founders into schools. It's about getting people in the workforce to talk about why it's important to continue with maths. Um, you know, it's, it's talking to the career advisors in schools to say who are desperate to hear from communities and business leaders, you know, what are the jobs of the future roughly look like? Nobody knows for sure, but what can I tell my kids? That 14, 15, 16 year old, that is such an impressionable, impressionable age. And then how do we get some of those folks 
work experience. And there are great initiatives here and in many places around the world where people can go and work for a week or two weeks when you're 15, 16, 17, and see what it's like. You know, to me, those are the supplemental building blocks that a community role can have in working with schools in partnership. Mm -hmm. I think going on later in life, you know, hopefully organizations large and small through a lot of their leadership development and training budgets are doing some of that. But we're seeing companies, I think over the past 10 or 20 years, they've scaled back enormously on the amount that they're investing in, in, in training and education for their workforce. So those folks need to find other ways in which they can do that. And so that's where, again, I think communities like ours can play a role that says to people, look, you can grow and develop maybe outside of your day job and do things that can help you with your skill set. I'm going to give you a very interesting example of, of an advocate who shared that with me. So AF, as you know, Rick, you may not know, in 2019, we had a Global Tech Advocate Summit in China. We went to Shanghai, we went to Beijing, and we had something like 60 advocates from around the world come and participate. And those who came, everybody had an opportunity to go up on stage. And there were two people who came on that trip who did an amazing job, who just blew me away. One was a 13 year old. He was our youngest advocate. He came with his mom. And for 10 minutes, he spoke to a Chinese audience of 350 people, all simultaneously translated about why entrepreneurship is important to him. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we had a 50 something like myself who'd worked his entire life in the insurance industry, who was representing one of our global tech advocates groups and spoke to this audience about what's going on in tech and his ecosystem, et cetera. And he came up to me afterwards. He said, Russ, he said, I've never done that before. I've never spoken to such a large group, let alone an international audience. He said, you may not have realized it, but I was so nervous and petrified. And I looked at him and I said, but you were brilliant. That was fantastic. And he had such a buzz. So, you know, whether it's our community, other communities, that skill development can happen at whatever age. And again, the mindset that we need to drive that I think you're also probing is it's lifelong. It's, it's, you've got to go on this journey from a young age all the way through. And if you see gaps in what you need to develop, go mm -hmm. out and develop them if you can. And if you're struggling, how can we, our society, our governments support you on that journey. Why do I beat this drum? Because if we have a productive workforce that is fully skilled, our GDP, our global economic growth is gonna be off the scale. It's another reason why we need to bring more women into the technology sector. You know, we, we need to bring women globally into the workforce because one, it's part of their economic freedom and independence and all of those important things but it's also about the economic value. If you bring more women into the workforce, what that does to our society overall, and maybe that helps to close the inequality gaps that we're seeing emerge in so many industrial societies around the world. Mm. So I'm linking community skills to that purpose of there's a big issue out there. And right. you can see if we don't get that right, if people feel, feel fearful, that they're gonna be left behind, mm -hmm. that they won't be able to work in the future, um, they rebel. Um, you know, the populist movements that we're seeing around the world, I think part of that is driven by 
fear that somebody else is going to take my job and livelihood away because, you know, I can see that, you know, technology is going to take away my job. Well, it's not. How can we help you into this world where you can probably contribute something significantly? That's, that's me on my pedestal. I'll get off it. But I can see this connection between what we're talking about for the theme of this session and why this is so critical for us around the world mm. to get right. Mm. Got it. What have you seen change as a result of everyone going remote, being forced to go remote this last year and a half or so um, in terms of building community? Um, and obviously we've had to rely more on technology, but you don't get to, you know, you haven't gotten together in certain areas that actually, I think, uh, quickens uh, the development of bonding and connecting and sharing ideas and debating, you know, in person and having that somatic experience. So what are you seeing in terms of how that has changed uh, even the work that you're trying to do and strengthen community, the challenges of that, what have you seen? Yes, I think it's been a, an absolute mixed bag, Rick. I mean, on, on the downside, it clearly has been much harder to do this remotely, um, to not see people, to not, you know, I'm, I'm a networker. And so yeah, if I can't physically be with people and connect and exchange business cards, whatever, that's that's really hard. And I think a lot of people have struggled with that. You know, people have been hired into companies, you know, all remotely and haven't really seen the culture and experienced the culture in action. So I think the degree of difficulty that we put on a lot of people over the past year and a half has been hugely high. So part of the reaction to that has been, how do we help people? You know, when we went into lockdown, you know, kind of March of 2020, it was kind of, what can we do immediately? Not just to help people, but to make sure businesses survive and literally from lockdown a week later, we launched our COVID-19 resource hub. We had 50 or 60 advocates ready to give free help and advice to anybody who asked for it. So it was about really jumping in and saying, how can we help you? How can we support you? What is going on in your business? The good things and the bad things that we should be worried about. And clearly there have been good things. There have been bad things. The mental health issues that have surfaced over the past year and a half, we're going to pay a big price for that. For, for a long time yet to come. This has been a real shock to the system. Some people thrived in this environment. Oh, I don't have to commute for two and a half hours a day. I can spend more time with my family. Others are saying I'm cramped in with you know, five or six other flatmates in my flat. You know, I can't just stay in my bedroom for the rest of my life. So that in itself has been a mixed bag. But I think one of the good things that are com that's coming out about this is you know, we're hopefully going to have, I think, a bit more balance where people will be together physically, but they're going to also use the remote mechanisms in place, you know, to kind of supplement that. Um, maybe one of the upsides for me is that I connected to so many people this way that would have been much harder to do on a physical basis, particularly with people in different parts of the world, you know, doing a Zoom call with, you know, a prominent person in the U.S. or China, whatever, you can do it. And so it brought the world together and opened more doors in that regard. But there, you know, it's been pluses and minuses. So I hope we learn from this. We take the good things that have come from this experience. You know, we, we lock away, recognize and lock away some of those bad things that happened and kind of say, this is this kind of hybrid world that we're now going to work in. And, um, you know, yesterday we had a, a big event. As AF knows, we normally pack seven or 800 people into one of our events here in London, it was a hybrid event. We had, we were in a studio, we had some speakers there, we had some speakers remote, 
we all when we were there like, oh my God, this feels great to be together. We had no audience except people watching and listening live and we reached a lot of people. But then we came out of that and said, you know, that's a really great model. Maybe the, the tweak that we make to it is we bring in a studio audience, not 800 people, right. but maybe we have 50 or 100 people there yeah. watching real time so we can engage with them. So you're going to see a lot of innovation emerge from this. And from that, people are going to say, what skills do I need for how this world of work evolves post-pandemic? Mm-hmm. And um, I want to remind the audience, if you have any questions, please um, post them kind of now-ish on Zoom or the social media channels that you're watching on. Uh, so, so I have another, another point I wanted to raise, which was related to um, the future, really. And uh, a lot's changed in the last 16 months or so. And we've talked about one aspect, which is the digital skills piece and, and getting us ready for this new world that we're in right now. And it's still unfolding and there's still uncertainty around us, of course. So um, let's let's pay a little bit more attention to the government um, and no particular country per se, but the government Mm -hmm. and uh, people who run government institutions. And we're very clear as to the the value of private sector uh, executives and individuals. And we're we're sort of semi biased because we are all private sector or from the private sector. So we get the private sector model. Uh, talk us through two elements of this, if you're comfortable, uh, Russ. The first one is, um, why do you feel confident about the role of government and mm-hmm. uh, in the future? And what worries you about the role of government in the future? Sure. I think maybe to preface that, I think it's also important to bear in mind that government engagement and involvement varies around the world. Um, you know, you look at the U.S. and to a degree, it's fairly hands off in terms of involvement. Yes, there's policy and things like that. You go to China and I've seen firsthand the government is involved with everything, every activity, every event, funding, whatever. The government is part of everyone's lives. And then, you know, you kind of come to the U.K. and Europe and, and there's probably more government engagement but nowhere near to the degree that we see in a place like, like China. And so looking at a place like, like the UK, you know, I've certainly been encouraged. I've met many government ministers, talked to you know, many different departments. Um, they get digital and tech. The policies that are being prepared now, whether it's a, a data strategy, a national AI strategy, a central bank digital currency, I've been involved with a lot of these discussions I'm really, really heartened that we've got smart people thinking about how do they put strategies and policies in place for the next five to 10 years that will really help to nurture, grow, and develop our our digital and tech economy. You know, to me, that's really positive. Um, I've seen in countries like France, the government put a lot of money into their technology sector. And Mm -hmm. part of me says that that's a good thing, but if that government changes, And the next government that comes in says, no, 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 we're not gonna put 4 billion euros into the French tech sector. We're gonna cut that way back. What is that gonna do to their tech sector? That to me is a risk. Mm -hmm. So I think there's this, how do you get this balance right? And part of my message to government has always been, look, if you can help with policy, whether it's on immigration policy, investment policy, taxation policy, education, that's great. Here's the feedback from the grassroots community about what we really need your help with. And by and large, they listen. And I have to say, from a bigger picture perspective, 
no complaints. The frustration and issue with government that I see, and I don't know if this is true of every government, but you know, our government here in the UK likes to move people around all the time. And that's part of their own development within government. And, and I look at that and say, actually, that's a good thing. But I will have spent 12 months working with a policy lead on something. And then suddenly I get an email saying, oh, I'm moving to Korea to work for this part of government. Here's my successor. It's like, what? Mm. So, you know, the private sector and many of these skills organizations that I've referred to earlier have a degree of continuity and stability that I think we try and say to government, learn from us. You know, I know who I'm speaking to is not going to be there in six months or a year or whatever, which is immensely frustrating. So that's certainly one aspect of it. There's also an aspect of, okay, government wants to show to its voters that it's getting stuff done. It's putting money here. It's doing this. They have this desire to go out and create things and build things. And, and my message is you don't need to do much of that. Play the policy enabler. Be the convener. You can convene people. But then step back and let people come in, let the private sector come in and drive the agenda. London Tech, one of the people asked me, what are the key success factors? Why has this become a top five tech hub in 10 years from most of the rankings that we see around the world? And I said, look, this is largely built on the private sector. Government's been a great enabler of policy. But if you look around London, if you look at the tech hubs, the innovation zones, whatever, it's private sector driven, it's big tech, it's startups, it's that ecosystem with universities coming together that are nurturing this. And right. the skills equation is sitting in all of this with all of these key stakeholders. So that to me, sorry, it's a bit long-winded, but that to me is how I try and focus back to government in terms of where we need them and where we need to say, don't get involved, we don't need you. Do you believe do you believe the influence that you've had over the last eight or ten years in building the community and the positive stories is also working on on, on government um, and this frustration piece? Of course, great to see that the positive stuff. Are they actually listening? Um, you know, let's call a spade a spade. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, are you I, I, less people move. Are you yeah. seeing are you listening and saying I'll, I'll take heat or is politics uh, kicking in? I, I guess you've got to contend with that, too. You do. You absolutely do. I mean, I deal with ministers who are focused on politics and you deal with civil servants as well. And again, I can speak from a UK perspective. Um, when I launched the Tech London Advocates Group back in 2013, um, the government organizations that were kind of responsible for nurturing it um, initially wanted nothing to do with me. Right. They didn't know why I was doing this. How, you know, what is this community going to do? You know, I said, look, we're independent, we're private sector led. So there might be times when we're critical of government and that made them feel uncomfortable. It was probably about a year or 18 months into this community where I started to have a bit more constructive outreach from leaders in government who said, mm, what you're doing is very interesting. And here we are today. I mean, literally not a week goes by where I'm not engaged with somebody somewhere in government who, and, and some of the, I think the more savvy ones will say, they want me at the table because I'll give them the unvarnished, honest feedback about the good things and the bad things. I never go in and yell and scream or anything, but if it's something about an immigration visa, I'm gonna go in and say, look, this is not working. Here's mm -hmm. why it's not working. We need you to change this. Here are some people who can help you. So it's, it's holding that mirror up to government at times to say, we don't agree. 
And initially that felt very uncomfortable. I think eight years in, at least the UK government has been very embracing and has welcomed me into a lot of discussions because I've also then connected them to the, some of the best thought leaders on the various topics that they need to hear about. Do mm. I full credit for this? Absolutely not. But being this unique grassroots independent community that mm. will tell it like it is based upon what the community is expressing, I think the government would say has been very helpful. Mm. So Russ, mm. we have a question from Facebook that's um, to this vein. Um, and so Hans is asking, how do you balance Western tech interests with that of China, given heightened US-China tensions? So how do you deal with the politics when you're trying to not, but you have to factor that in? How, how does that work? How, do you, how are you working with that? Hans, that is an absolutely brilliant question. Uh, I'm trying to organize another Global Tech Advocate Summit in China next year. And I think what I'm trying to do is, is, is two things. One, the, the event that we did in 2019, and we do have a Tech China Advocates group, and they're absolutely wonderful. One was to try and see and understand what is going on in China in terms of their science, innovation, and technology. We toured science parks, innovation hubs. Chinese are very, very proud to show what they're building and creating. And my message back to other advocates, other governments is, look, we need to see and understand what's going on in China. You know, it's a very different society. It's a very secretive society. When I go there, I can't use Facebook or WhatsApp or all of the things that I normally like to use. They have created their own ecosystem. But I feel like it's important to see, know, and understand what's going on there so that we can be informed from a global perspective. I think also with China going forward, and you know, we've just we've just kicked off our own Tech for Net Zero campaign across all of our global networks. And that will be the theme of the event that we're going to take to China next year. The Chinese are coming to the COP26 climate change conference in Glasgow in November. And I think this whole climate change, circular economy, sustainability area is where the world needs to come together. China and the West, I think, are going to need to collaborate because we all live on just one planet. So my focus going forward in working with our Tech China Advocates Group is very much on tech for net zero and learning, experiencing, and understanding what's going on there. There's massive innovation going on in China that is surpassing what's happening in the West. To give you an example, our retail tech and our TLA China group did an event in March, and we had the MD of Alibaba for Western Europe speak to everybody about the e-commerce and S-commerce innovation coming out of China. And I set that up. I said, look, I don't want to talk geopolitics. I want us to learn and see the innovation that's going on in China because it is incredibly impressive and in all likelihood it's coming our way. Mm. Mm. We've got another Great question, Hans. That's good. Thank, thank you, Rick. Um, there's another question that's come in from Facebook. So Facebook, uh, Facebook folks are active. What is your perspective on UK government's loosening of encryption standards? It's a slightly more technical question. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this a positive more, uh, is this more positive for civil society? Uh, or is this a more positive move, I think is what you meant to say, for civil society? Yeah, I, I, I worked at Skype for a few years, so I'm, I'm indoctrinated in the importance of encryption. So whenever I hear governments trying to ease up on encryption rules and standards, I get very nervous. Yes, I know that there are some dark things that happen 
through encryption platforms, uh, encrypted platforms, you know, Skype is an encrypted platform. But I do think they play a very important role in, in making sure that that communications can be private and secure. And anytime government starts to tamper with that, I get really, really concerned and, and nervous. Um, you know, we, we're seeing governments, you know, we talked about China, but not just China, we're seeing governments in different parts of the world really trying to get a bit more heavy handed, sometimes for the right reasons, sometimes for the wrong reason. But I think if you open that door on encryption, mm. you can go back. Fair point, fair point. Um, good, excellent. Um, I, I have one more question, depending okay. on how we, how we time, we've got another yeah. five minutes before we close off. Um, so let's, let's, think, um, let's think about 10 years down the line, and you've been doing this for nearly two decades. What, what is it that you're really seeking here? Um, and we're certainly not looking for an end in mind because this is lifelong too. Yes. What would what will delight you if you ever decide to sort of um, be on a permanent holiday or decide that <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to use the word retire that's not the right word but if you decide that you want to sort of take it easy at some point in your life what would you be really uh, proud of um, and you're looking back at what you have managed to do uh, for the people you care about and for the country that you live in yes well I think I, I hope the legacy here is that you know, these communities have grown, they've built up over time, they've been hugely beneficial to so many. If they can carry forward in some way, shape or form, that would be amazing. You know, all of these GTA groups around the world, they're structured in such a way that it's very light touch for me. There's certain principles and values and yeah, stuff around trademarks and branding, that's all part of it. But there's no reason why they can't continue and keep doing what they're doing. You know, maybe there is somebody that comes in and kind of takes on more of a global role. But again, these are very independent, localized communities and networks. And as long as there's somebody who's helping them to interconnect with each other, um, there's no reason why they can't continue and evolve and take some of that community building experience and continue with it. I mean, you know, I, I still see myself doing this for for many years to come, you know, when I turned 50 when I came out of Skype and my wife thought I was going to semi-retire. And I said, oh, I just have this one project I want to do. And, and here it is, and it's kind of taken over my life. But it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And I think there's enough people in this community who get such a buzz and a positive out of doing what they're doing that even if it's not called global tech advocates or whatever, but they can sustain this. Um, and this understanding of why communities and networks are important and why getting people to develop skill sets for the future is critical, that would be fantastic. Mm, fabulous. Long mate, continue. There's another question. There's one last burning question here. This is okay. from YouTube. Okay. Uh, so last one we're going to get in here, uh, Russ, is if someone were looking to set up a tech community within a developing country, mm -hmm. what do you see as the biggest barriers to watch out for? Yes, it's a good question. I mean, we have we have networks that have been set up in places like Bogota in Lima. Um, we're, we're working on a hopefully a Tech Africa Advocates platform. I think what I find with these communities uh, in, in developing markets is there's amazing talent. So leverage the talent that's there. Um, explain to people what you're trying to do. Um, that will often involve government, let them know, show them the model. I think the beauty that we can do with developing markets is show them that 
not only are we setting up a local ecosystem, but we're connecting it to a global network, which many of them find very interesting and, and, and fascinating. And just keep, be open, be inclusive, be mindful that whoever wants to come in, bring them in and, 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 and put them to work. Um, the model, I don't think, is that dramatically different from developing markets to the more maybe advanced technology markets. The, the, the kind of the methodology is the same. It's just the pace, the focus, the direction that you might take could be a bit different depending on the needs of your emerging economy. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. The That's only crazy. bit I would, I would add a bit to it just um, because um, of the work that I'm doing with uh, TLA, GTA and so on and so forth. I think the, the, the cultural differences are quite significant um, mm. in developing economies versus developed economies. And uh, the, the thing I learned really was, uh, A, you have to be very patient so uh, you know you may get may get, you may see results much faster in a developed economy for all the obvious reasons. In a developing economy, you've got to take it easy. You've got to step back. You've got to come off the accelerator from time to time, and uh, try and gauge how things are perceived. Because you know sometimes you have a low trust um, equation in a developing economy just because the systems haven't been built to that level. So to Russ's point, you do have to spend time looking for the smarts the talents of people who align with your value system, and only then can you start to execute on the framework and the blueprint. So I, I learned that the hard way, of course, that it takes much longer to go find the right people in the right way and get them inspired in, at the right time so they can go execute on this. So that's the only bit I would add to it. But uh, uh, yeah, phenomenal. I mean, I think we're coming to the end of the show. Uh, what a fantastic hour that's sort of flown by and uh, a marvelous uh, endeavor and mission that you're on. And mm -hmm. one of the things I think, you know, Rick, you and I, uh, it's inspired me and, and you and I have been trying to build a community with Live. It's a not-for-profit too. And we've built a, a pretty sizable community in a short space of time, which tells us there is a need and there is um, a need for belonging. Exactly. There is a need for belonging uh, outside all of the, the good sort of productivity related stuff. And we'd like to join forces with, I'm already part of it, but Russ, we'd like to join forces with the work you're doing. I uh, don't know quite how, but we should talk about it because yes. we've got um, quite a few thousand straight talkers who are, uh, as we call them, mavericks or aspiring mavericks. And many of them may be in the community that you've built, but they're global, of course. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think we need to look at multiplier effects as well as network effects yeah. as, a, as, a, as a unit together to help drive the cause because um, there's so much... Um, overlap and parallels here. Yes, well, straight talk talkers are very welcome to come into the, into the community. We can work on a way to do that. You know, obviously, we'll want to, I think, introduce many of our advocates, I think now 20,000 at least around the world, to, to straight talk uh, live so that, you know, there, there's such a mutuality here that we can, we can grow and nurture. And I think to me, that goes to the heart of how do you keep building your community, but important that we keep our values as we do this. And I think part of the reason why we're talking and, and this you know, feels so great is that our values are aligned as, as, as organizations in terms of what we're really trying to do. I love the straight talk focus and premise, the honest approach. And I think for us, the community is one of the values that we've tried to say is look, be honest, you know, tell people like it is, tell them the good stuff, tell them the bad stuff. You know, right. tech is not this, you know, euphoria. There's a really dark side to tech. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of yeah. problems in tech. Tell mm -hmm. it like it is. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's really important. You guys do a terrific job mm -hmm. doing that. So long may that continue. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Russ. Uh, thank you for your time, your passion. You're very and a very inspired leader, and um, it just you are the right man for this mission. And <laughs> it's great to see the ripple effect that you're creating. Uh, so thank you for sharing that today on our platform. And where can people find out more about you and your good work? Where should they go? You're welcome to go onto the globaltechadvocates.org website. Uh, you can do the same with Tech London Advocates or go on to LinkedIn. And, you know, if you mentioned that you heard about me or heard this on, you know, from Straight Talk, then let's connect and mm. we can follow up there, bring you into a group. Um, that's how we operate. That's, that's our modus operandi. So that, those are the ways you can reach out. Great. Straight Talkers, please check that out. We'll also have our speakers page. We'll have your profile, Russ, and your links there. Right. So it's another place that people can go, straighttalk.live. Uh, to find out more information about you. Uh, thank you again for your brilliance, your candidness, your humanity, and all that you're doing. So appreciate you on our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You got it. And then really quick, next week, we have a quite exciting and interesting guest. Um, this is actually um, one of the more interesting thinkers I've ever met in my life. Uh, so Bill Dividow is an author, investor at Moore Dividow Ventures. And I would say he's a philosopher as much as, you know, a, scientist, mathematician, all the amazing components that he brings to the equation. Um, but we're going to talk about living in virtual space, the power of imagination and sensory augmentation, and how we're already living in our virtual spaces. Um, so I can't wait to explore that next week. Until then, keep straight talking out there. We'll have this conversation soon. Thank you all. Bye, Russ. Bye.